So as we continue through the Lenten season, we're going to be, and we are, making use of the Psalms to help guide us as we consider the practices of discipleship. And in particular, we're looking at the prayers that the psalmist in Psalm 84 says, he says, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways of Zion. The King James puts it another way, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Now, a way for you to think about Lent and to make use of the season in your discipleship is to think of March as a season of marching, of walking. Um, and we are headed to Jerusalem with Jesus um, and his Passion Week and to celebrate and remember those events and the, uh, the resurrection in particular and his, um, his ascension. Now, as we reflect on the sorts of things, the commands that Jesus gave us, and we think about remembering those commands and obeying them, um, following him as his disciples, we will take up our own cross and walk with him and follow him. And you can think of these prayers as the cadence calls of disciples. You You know what a cadence call is? Right when you're when you're marching in the army, you have a cadence call. Your drill instructor uh, leads you in that cadence call. The, the the psalms are the cadence calls of discipleship. And today we're going to be looking at Psalm 34 and what I'm calling a psalm or a song for those who are afraid. Now the events that inspired Psalm 34 are written in the title there. If you if you have your Bible open, you can see the title. And the title is, Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. And that's referring to the events that took place in 1 Samuel 22. And we read through that, um, and uh, I preached on that last fall. And you'll recall that leading up to those events, David had just slain Saul, or slain Goliath, And as he is rising in esteem among the people, um, and he's arising in influence in King Saul's court, he is befriended by Saul's son, Jonathan. And they have a strong, fast relationship. And he eventually, David eventually marries Saul's daughter, Michal. Over the course of that time, uh, King Saul grows increasingly jealous and hostile towards David. And David um, is a man, for he didn't seek notoriety, um, but he becomes the subject of a lot of attention. And the success we learn through the, story, through the stories that are being portrayed are not because of his giftedness, though he has gifts, but um, they're, they're rather evidence of his faithfulness, his trusting in the Lord. But David has to flee for his life. Um, He hopes to live in um, anonymity, in exile, in Gath. And you'll recall whom and where a particular Philistine giant was from, don't you? So, for good or ill, David is hiding out in Gath, just hoping to just escape trouble, but he is discovered and he is persecuted by the king of Gath. 
And he is now an enemy among those whom he, with whom he dwells. And David has nowhere now to turn. In order to get out, he seeks him to make himself as detestable as possible so that they won't kill him, but just send him away. Now, another thing I want to note about this psalm is that David wrote it in an acrostic form. It's a poetic form, and it's, the, the form is called an acrostic. That is, that each one of the lines of the psalm begin with the subsequent letter in the Hebrew alphabet. You know, it's a very ordered way um, by which you might kind of write out a poem. And we can only speculate as to why David chose to write it in an acrostic. But I think there are some good reasons to, for us to assume that why he did so. Firstly, the, the, the shape, the, the constrictions of the poem actually allow him to bring order to the chaos that he is personally experiencing. I mean, one of the things I thought about doing with the little kids is to say, could you write out the ABCs of all of the things that you're afraid of? That wouldn't be a bad activity for you to do. You know, it's just a kind of A stands for, I don't know, animals. I don't know. You know, so you're just kind of going through all of the things that you're, you might be afraid of. And it just kind of, and actually working that out and getting that out would help you, I think, admitting it. So we think, you know, that David is using this acrostic poem to help him um, work through his thoughts. And it's a shame that, it's a shape that brings order to the chaos of his circumstances. Um, and, and throughout it, uh, it's an account of how it is that one prays their fears. Um, you might think of it as a, an A to Z account, um, an A to Z tribute to God and his salvation, right? It's, it's a thorough confession. And the shape, right, the poetic form allows them to do that. So as we look at Psalm 34, we're going to be looking at the problem the repair, the blessing, and the work. The problem, the repair, the blessing, and the work. Um, and before Lori Delarina comes and reads the passage, let, let me just pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, um, we need to come before you, granting you thorough access to our hearts. And in some measure, that, I mean, that means... Uh, at least admitting to you all the things that we're afraid of. Um, and so, Lord, I pray that you would help, uh, help us to be transparent with who we are, to give you um, uh, thorough access to all of our hearts. And in so doing, Lord, that we might have ourselves a thorough account of your salvation, all the ways in which you've helped us and saved us and rescued us. Uh, Lord, doing that, um, we ask that the gratitude would well up in praise um, to you and thanksgiving. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The bulletin says Psalm 32, but this is Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. 
Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of God. Thank you so much, Lori. Okay, so firstly... The problem. In, psalm, in, in this psalm, David, he isn't merely addressing one fear. He says in verse 4 that he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. And I don't think that what he's talking about is all my fears as being the fears that he fears sequentially. Like this fear and then this fear that's followed by another and another and another. Uh, the fears that David is facing in Gath, or had faced in Gath, they were all his fears at once. Right? You think about that. The fear of being murdered, the fear of alienation, the fear of the future and the present. Right? David is being swallowed. And he says, or he references in the psalm, the fear of poverty, of safety, of hunger, of the evil of the wicked, of being lied to, of being deceived, of war and trouble and fighting, of insignificance, of being crushed and broken by affliction. And what's more, he is wondering as he cries if the Lord sees him in his trouble or even cares about him in his suffering. David says, all his fears, all my fears. Now, again, like, are you aware of what it is that you're afraid of? 
What is it that wakes you up in the middle of the night? When the fears come rushing in, right, it's like a flood. You can feel it if you're thinking about that, right? You can feel fear in your body. Um, it's not a theoretical thing. It's a thing that um, ignites your nervous system. And your fight or flight reflexes, they engage. And it's difficult to concentrate or even think. Like in that moment, right, when it's, when it's all on, you're thinking, do I punch somebody or do I run away? Do I double down in trying to gain mastery or control over an issue? Do I, do I start barking orders at people? Do I wither under the weight of those fears? Do I hide myself physically and emotionally? Friends, David may have changed his behavior before Abimelech that he, you know, this is titled here, but I bet you he didn't have to work too hard at it. Now, as I was thinking about this psalm and, and some of these situations, and particularly about the fear, um, I, I was thinking about a favorite movie of mine, and we're going to use the, this movie um, to kind of press some of the language of this psalm into, a, into an experience. Um, I, <laughs> there may be four movies, probably seven, 12 books that you know I'm going to reference, one, but, but one of those is It's a Wonderful Life. Okay. Now, I'm fascinated by, by the movie because so many things come together nationally and personally in 1946-47, right? In this film, it was Jimmy Stewart's first film after being a B-24 Liberator pilot, squadron commander, combat group operations officer, and a bomber wing chief of staff. He flew 20 missions from England into Germany and over Europe. And by the time that he arrived in Germany in November, or in England in November of 1943, only 25% of the active bomber crews up to that point were able to complete the 25 required missions in order for them to be discharged and to be sent home. 25%. Right? That's 10 men per crew. You know, those, those bomber crews uh, were either shot down and killed um, or captured. You know, it had been, at this, at this time, as it, It's a Wonderful Life comes out, it had been five years since he had acted in a film. And the great irony and brilliance of Frank Capra's movie is that it's captured in the movie's title, It's a Wonderful Life. And as you follow in the story, you follow George Bailey's life through the years of this critical Christmas Eve, which is where all the events center around. George's life seems to have been anything but wonderful. Um, he, he has battled, you know, and has had to take up his father's business, which he did not want to do. But the struggle of taking over his father's business as doing what he talks about, scraping along the belly of the beast, it has left him on edge. And in this crucial night on Christmas Eve in, Doc, in Mr. Martini's pub, facing the events of the day, which will ultimately surely bring about his financial ruin, the death of his dreams, 
public scandal and even a prison sentence, George comes to the end of himself. And it's a remarkable scene there in Mr. Martini's bar because it was all ad-libbed. Jimmy Stewart in that moment ad-libs, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way. Now, Stewart later recounted, he says, as I said those words, I felt the loneliness the hopelessness of people who had nowhere to turn, and my eyes filled with tears, and I broke down sobbing. Now, it wasn't just theoretical people. It was five years of war and a lifetime prior to that. One of his biographers said that when you saw Stuart acting in that scene, it was the result of all of his war experiences. He says it was like lightning was captured in a bottle. And Carol Burnett said it was one of the finest pieces of acting ever caught on screen. Jimmy Stewart didn't have to work too hard to access those emotions and that energy that he was putting into as he filmed and acted in It's a Wonderful Life. I, I think that's very similar to what's going on in David as he's writing or as he's experiencing what he's experiencing in Gath. Another remarkable thing is that the film, that, that scene was filmed in one take. Right, this ad-libbed prayer where a man comes to the end of himself and cries out, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way is just the sort of prayer that a poor man or a poor woman who has nowhere else to turn cries out to be saved and delivered from all their fears. A question I want to ask you is, have you prayed that kind of prayer? Have you ever prayed that kind of prayer? I can't recommend it highly enough. So, what, that, that's the, the, I guess, the problem, right? What comes there, then, with being confronted with all your fears and, and turning to the Lord is the repair. And the repair is being repaired to fearing the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord is inaugurated in a lot of instances in the Bible by trembling and falling down. But it also comes with wonder and glory. Right? For George Bailey, his fear is rightly ordered in view of the present love that he is being shown by his family and his community. Right? The love of Mary Hatch. Bailey, his wife, who vowed from a very young age that she would love him till the day he dies. Right? It comes through his children and his Medal of Honor recipient brother Harry, who declares George the richest man in town. Right? Together, right, with the family and his neighbors who rally to his side, right? So so much so that the sheriff and the bank examiner are won over. You know, before that happens, though, George returns home not caring about this scandal or the, his reputation, his wealth, or even his prison time. He has come to see his life as wonderful because he finally has his fear rightly ordered. And that's what happens to David. 
when he prays his acrostic prayer of all of the things um, that the Lord has done for him. Right. The, the movie is remarkable because it begins with this intercession of family and friends on behalf of George. And there might be a lot of things that you would want to say about Frank Capper in his movie, um, the presentation of the events in the movie, but um, it wasn't true then, and it certainly is not true now, that a movie begins with people praying that God would deliver a friend and a father, a husband and a nephew from all of their troubles, right? And, and <laughs> you're certainly not going to see a movie in which uh, a man so poignantly prays an earnest prayer from a place of sincere brokenness. Now, David, David says, right, that even lions grow faint and weary, right? That's a way you could live your life, is to be a lion, right? But David is saying, that's not, that's not going to lead you anywhere. I mean, you're going to fail at some point. George in this movie is not a lion. David is not a lion. Mr. Potter's a lion. Abimelech's a lion. Goliath is a lion. But David, in seeking refuge in and in fearing the Lord, comes, comes to be filled and satisfied. And he, and he invites us, he begs us, he says, taste for yourselves. He says, try the Lord, right? When you've come to the end, seek him. You will not find yourself destitute, but you will find that you will not lack one good thing. Right? Um, George has, he sees, that all that he has ever needed, he actually, uh, that to make his life wonderful, he already has. That's kind of one of the messages of the stories, of that story. David, David sees that too. And it empowers David. David finds himself delivered from the hands of the king of Saul, right, and the hand of the king of Gath. And we read in verse um, of 1 Samuel 22, verses 1 through 2, which is just after these events, um, about the same time as David's celebrating what's happened, it's, we read that David departed from Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone, get this, everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And they were with him about 400 men. See, David is brought into a better community. A better community than any, either of the ones that he left in a king's court or as an expat in exile. Right? We, friends, we're here because we're all poor. We've all stepped down. We are all people who have been in distress and are in debt. We are bitter in soul, soul and we have been gathered together under the Lord's anointed. So, in the Lord's anointed, right, there, there is this deliverance that we have come to receive. And, and what it is that David talks about receiving 
is there's this twofold blessing. And that twofold blessing is confidence and love. The confidence comes through the reality of being redeemed, of who it is that has redeemed him, right? The one in whom he has refuge, right? He comes um, to be delivered, and he is saved for and finds refuge in the place with, um, uh, with the Lord. And as, as a consequence of that, right, there's no condemnation that he fears. There's no judgment that he fears. He is safe. None of his fears can touch him. And then there's also the additional and ultimate blessing of a question that lingered in the midst of his affliction. And, and that question is, you know, does the Lord really see me where I am? Does he see me in my trouble? Does the Lord hear my cry? Does he care for me? And it's answered right by the reality that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears towards those who cry. Right? Again, as I was saying to the little kids, the faces of those who look to the Lord are radiant because the Lord is already looking at them. He's already set his attention on them. Right? You, you don't have eyes that are looking at you unless you have a face that's turned towards you. And this is David's ultimate blessing. Right? David knows the face of the Lord has been turned towards him in love. Right? When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. Right? The, the Lord acts, he delivers, he draws near. And not only has the Lord drawn near in hearing and in consoling and comforting, but he has drawn near by coming down. Right? What, what we know of the Lord's anointing is that he has come down to be with us. He has taken on our humanity. He has suffered every suffering with us and for us. And this drawing near, that, that would be comforting. Right? That's, that's good news that he has done this. But there's even more that we're drawn to, that we can draw comfort from. And we see it in the gospel of John's witness that Jesus in suffering on the cross, John notes that not one of his bones was broken, quoting this verse, this, this psalm. In 19, John 19.35 we read, He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. Now that's, that's more than just merely a prophecy that unlike the other um, people who were being crucified at the time, their, their legs were broken so that they couldn't hold themselves up and they would die quicker. It was to kind of hasten their death. And when the soldiers, the executioners came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead so they didn't break his bones, right? It's, it's not just a prophesi prophecy saying, well, this is something that's happened. John is wanting to tell us what it is that it means, right? John is saying to us, taste and see that the Lord is good. Trust in him because the salvation that he has accomplished for us will stand. You get the, get the connection. You can't stand with broken legs, right? It will stand, right? That's our confidence, 
That's our love because God, as John says, so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so this, this, this brings us to the work, right? You, you step, you face and step into um, this renewed fear of, of having um, your eyes directed towards the Lord and you live out of uh, that respect of beholding that is um, something around which you can build your life. You, you do so by turning to him firstly, David says. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And then secondly, by our worship of him, our turning to and our worship. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Right? And even more so by our love. Right? He says... Um, what man, right, who desires life or long life and loves many days that he may see good? Now, I think what he's saying here is not so much just that um, loving to be alive and not be dead, right? He's not, he, you can read it that way. You, you desire long life. I want to live a long life. But I think he, you can take it also as another, in another way that it's not merely the desire of wanting to live a long life um, or the love of living a long life, but it is the love that we live in the life that we are living. Loving as we're living. Right? If living in love over many days is what eternal life is, there's good news because what is keeping that from you today? Right? If your purpose is to love over, your, you know, over the span of your life, what's being denied to you right now? You can already have that. Right? You can already purpose to love others. And you know, if love over the span of an eternity, you know, in that beginning today, is not your idea of an eternal life, I'm afraid that you're not really going to enjoy heaven that much. So the brilliance, I think, in the title, It's a Wonderful Life, is that, it, um, is that for those who live in the king's, the king of the universe's kingdom, the wonderfulness has already begun. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together.